one of the reasons that I wasn't going to say anything about the numbers, um, one of the reasons, is because of all the places where we could be today, and personally speaking, where all the places I could be today, I would not rather be anywhere else. And uh, no matter how many of us are able to gather in person or virtually, or how many are sick and suffering and hurting, um, I love the Lord's people in this place, and I'm thankful to be able to be with you today to open the Word of God, to study it, to sing these songs of praise, to be led in prayer uh, by such godly men, and uh, to have our spirit stirred within us by the singing of these songs and the sharing of this message together. If you would add to your prayer list the Motal family, Chad's grandmother passed away uh, over the last couple of days, um, and so... I want to keep that family in our prayers, remember them. I meant to mention that earlier and uh, just read right over it as I was going through uh, the announcements. It's not necessarily part of the lesson this morning, but a lot has been said in the last few weeks and even in our prayers today and our thoughts about the, the things going on in our world, the distractions that we're facing. You know, I think back to, to maybe the last five to, to eight years it seems like we have moved and jumped from one tragedy, problem, circumstance, uncertainty to another. And while I, like you, am praying for the end of what we're going through now, may we be reminded that when this is over, there will be something else. And aren't we grateful that our citizenship is in heaven, and that our Lord reigns, and that we are New Testament Christians with hope and a message and the world needs that. It's always needed it. It needs it now more than ever, and we have a great task before us. Our, our thoughts for this year are not arranged as they have been in years past, and I told you that last week. We, we have a theme, but not every month will we, will we be investigating a sub-theme under that. But there will be a series of series that we will go through and a, a building block of lessons that should help us to be the people that God would have us to be and to, 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 to grow in his likeness, to become more like Jesus, to be more equipped to share the gospel with those that are on the outside, to be a, a closer-knit family than we ever have been in the past. And so that is our aim. And so this morning we'll introduce a, a thought or an idea that will carry us to the end of this month. There will be four sermons, Lord willing, that we'll consider in this. But I want to introduce the idea by turning to Psalm 88. So if you have your Bibles open to Psalm 88 and look at the closing verses of that psalm and notice what is said. Um, as you know, the psalmist uh, covers a, a, a wide range of emotional uh, platforms. Um, everything in the, in the psalms seems to be about worship and honoring God and, and serving Him and being His disciple. But along the way, the psalmist comes into that situation and, and, and with that uh, is a series of emotions, whether it's happiness or sadness or uncertainty or loss. Uh, psalm 88, at least the end of the psalm, is, is a lot more to do with loss and a lot more to do with, with, with difficulty and struggles as the one who comes before God. Pick up reading with me in verse 13. He says, but O Lord, or I, O Lord, have cried out to you for your help. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted, about to die for my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. 
They, that, they surround me like water all day long. They've encompassed me together. You have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. Now, in the poetic language of the psalmist, to describe the depths of misery, there are some, some very vivid descriptions, isn't there? being encompassed by water as if I'm drowning, being haunted by terrors directly from God himself according to the way he felt, crying out and not being heard, afflicted and about to die from a very young age. But at the end of that section, he says that in keeping with the spirit of misery, he felt like he had no friend. Did you realize that that friendship is one of the highest compliments you could ever pay to someone. Remember the description of Abraham in in James chapter 2? Abraham believed God and it was imputed or counted unto him for righteousness. And Abraham was called the friend of God. Of all the things that the inspired writer could have called Abraham, the father of the faithful, the one who left his homeland, the one who put his trust in God, the one who offered his own son. But yet to summarize his life and to give him a great compliment... The writer simply says he was God's friend. I'm convinced that if we are going to be one, we are going to function as a family on every level that's possible for a group of this size, of this diversity to be one and to be a family. We're going to have to learn to be friends. Now, that's, that's easier said than done, and it's a great statement to make, but, but there's a lot to be said for how we show ourselves friendly and how we manage the friendships that we have in life. But we need to be a people who are seeking friends. And so this morning, I want us to begin a series of lessons entitled Four Friends We All Need. And, and what I want us to do over the course of, of the next few weeks is to investigate, number one, whether or not there's anybody in our life right now that fits the criteria of the individual that we'll deal with in our sermons. And then say to ourselves, am I that person for anybody else? If we were to go seeking to be or to have both of those things, we would be better off and we, our church family would be better off and we would be more united the one we want to consider this morning, the friend that we all need, we're going to draw from a very famous, infamous story of the Old Testament. If you're already there in the Old Testament, turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Maybe of all the friends we need, the one we need more than any is, from an earthly standpoint, is a Nathan in our lives. Now, if you don't know the story of, of Nathan or who he is, then, then you will be encouraged, I have no doubt. If you do know him, you already know what's going on, right? You already know what's happened in, in, the, in, the, in the progress of Scripture. If you go back a chapter to chapter 11, you find one of the most heinous, disrespectful scenes in all of Scripture. You, you have, a, In fact, you have a situation that sometimes causes us to scratch our heads and to wonder how. Because here's a man who was chosen by God, a a leader among God's people, the the man that sat on God's throne. Of the three kings of united Israel, we would deem David as the most righteous and the most powerful and the most godly of all. And yet, his sin 
Although the others did sin, and we highlight Saul's sins and Solomon's sins at times, David's sins are far more memorable, aren't they? At least the ones found in chapter 11 are. But here, here's a man who should have been at war with his troops and leading them. It was a time when kings went to war. David was at home. His men were out in the field, and you remember the story. He saw a woman that was not his wife. In fact, the wife of one of his most trusted soldiers bathing. Her name was Bathsheba. He called for her to come and, and be with him, and, and, and he took her intimately. She became pregnant with his child. David tried in chapter 11 to get the, the, the situation turned to where people wouldn't know he had done wrong. So he brought Uriah home from battle, Bathsheba's husband, and encouraged him to go spend time with his wife. But Uriah, being a man of integrity, wouldn't do that. So with every other resource already spent and every other option in David's mind already taken, David sends Uriah's death orders by Uriah's own hand. And the men put Uriah in the front and draw back, and Uriah, Uriah dies at the hand of the enemy, but actually he dies because of the maliciousness, the ungodliness of his own king. A man, the Bible says, lived after God's own heart. And it's surprising to us, right? In fact, we, we struggle with accepting that and, and, and the fallout. In fact, we could get later in, in, in the text and find, and we'll actually reference this in a moment, that the statements of David in Psalm 32 or, or in Psalm 50 where we realize that, that David is eaten up with guilt because of the things that he's gone through, the things that he's done. But without Nathan in the story, friends, we don't get a happy ending. Without Nathan's involvement, David stays in the mire of sin and in the muck of, uh, of guilt. Every one of us need a Nathan. Now, we're not going to read the totality of the text, chapter 12. But let's start in verse 1 and pick up after the events we've described in chapter 11. And notice what Nathan's role was in this situation. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many great flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew and grew up together with him and his children. And it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and he was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's anger, verse 5, was burned greatly against the man and said to Nathan, as, as, as the Lord lives, surely the man has done this, has deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did, not ha he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan said to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Now he's going to go on at, at, at the remainder of that text through verse 15 and spell out to David all of the consequences that David is going to face and all the, the fallout in his house is going to take place. Nathan's role in the story, while God ordained and God demanded and the strength that God supplied to do it is paramount for the outcome necessary. He's the hero. 
He's the one that we want to mimic. David, a man after God's own heart, God's greatest king, Israel's greatest king, he's not the giant slayer. He's not our example here. He's not the friend that all of us need. We all need a Nathan. I think the reason in the listing of these four friends that we're going to talk about that I put Nathan at the front is because he's least likely to be the guy we pick. Let's just be honest. Usually we draw our circle of friends from people that think like us, believe like us, talk like us, and like us. And we've equated liking us with letting us live our lives, letting us make our choices, letting us express our our frustrations and, and, and do our own thing. And they're not judgmental and they're not harsh and they're not confrontational. They're just people who make us feel good about ourselves. Now, I believe there is a place for those people in our circle of friends. But every single person living needs a Nathan. But generally speaking, Nathans are asked to stand in pulpits and serve in elderships. And sometimes in our circle of influence, in our environment, they're the only people in our lives that actually come to us and say... I'm not sure about what you just did. I'm not sure about what you just said. Maybe you need to rethink that. We talked last week about needing someone to stand in our way and stop our actions when they're wrong. Those are Nathans. That's what they do. that's, That's the responsibility they have in our lives. And so for just a few moments, what I want to do is I want us to answer two questions. Number one, why do we need confrontation? Why do we need someone like Nathan in our lives? I don't know that we have to explain it, but we're going to. But number two, if I'm going to be someone else's Nathan, if I'm going to stand before someone and say, listen, that's not right, what am I going to need to take with me? Because I think this text answers uh, both of those questions for us. Number one, why do we need a Nathan? Well, because we sin. Okay, that, that's just the, the, the fact of the matter. In fact, you go to, to, to 1 John chapter 1, you read verse uh, 7, you read, or verse 8 rather, you read verse 10. If we say we have no sin and if we say we've never sinned, we're lying. I think that the, the terminology there is this. A person might say, listen, I haven't done anything wrong in a few days. That's probably not true. I've never done anything wrong. Well, that's certainly not true. John addresses both of those. Maybe there were people in the first century that John was dealing with who were claiming those types of things, and so John was trying to answer that. But in general, people take that attitude, don't they? In fact, if you do confront them, if you are a Nathan to someone, a general response will be, mind your own business, I'm not doing anything wrong. I don't see any problem with what I just did. But you see, we need Nathans because basically, generally, we sin. And because of that, we need someone to call us on it. To hold us accountable. You see, when, what happens when we know? When we get to a point where we admit and we acknowledge and we realize that we have a problem. Maybe it's with alcohol or pornography. What's generally the, the, the route that's taken? Well, we, we go find someone to be a, an accountability partner for us, right? We actually ask someone to be a Nathan for us. Hold me accountable. Call me on the carpet. Ask me what I've done. If I've done these things, if I've been clean or, or, or free. You see, 
while we may not all have a struggle with alcohol or a struggle with pornography, we all have a struggle from time to time with sin, don't we? And so if I know already I have a problem and we will eventually, if we don't already, we will have one, I need to go ahead and get that accountability partner lined up. That's Nathan. We need Nathans in our lives because we sin. Not only that, because we sin secretly. Now, I full well believe that sin is destructive enough and and deadly enough and, and divisive enough that eventually the sin that we commit will be known. I understand that if we make it through this life, having covered them all, God will uncover them at the end. But I think for the most part, and we probably have lived through the experience of this, that even when we try to hide something, we can't hide it forever. It eventually will come out. Someone will know. But there is a sense in which sin is committed in our lives in an extremely secretive way. Think about David's situation, for example. Here's a man who has the protection of privacy by virtue of the position that he held. Not everyone knew the king's business. Not everyone knew the king's ordinances and his commands and his responsibilities and his private activities. In fact, he was alone in his palace as his men were at war when all of these things happened anyway. And David hid behind that, didn't he? Have you ever been amazed at how he was able to write Uriah's death sentence, roll it up and seal it and put it in Uriah's hand and Uriah never look at it? You know why that is? Some of it has to do with the integrity of Uriah, no doubt. Other, just the fact that that's the position David had. He was able to keep it private because of the advantages available to him to do so. Friends, I know we're not kings and I know we don't sit on thrones, but we have provided to us in our world today a whole lot of privacy, don't we? In fact, we, we get irritated and angry when people violate that privacy and and abuse that and, and try to know our business when they shouldn't. There are, on the books, dozens of privacy laws to keep people at bay and away from our information. And that's good and right because otherwise we would be susceptible and vulnerable to all types of attacks. But in that position that we have, because of those blessings provided to us of privacy, our sin can be far more hidden even today than maybe ever before. And so we need someone to be able to bring that sin to light, to to bring it out of the shadows that we might deal with it. Not only do we sin and we sin secretly or privately, we also sin willfully, willingly. That's David's sin here. Don't don't try to sugarcoat what happened. Sometimes we'll say, well, you know, David just got caught up in the moment. He just just stumbled. It was a weakness. Listen, you go back to chapter 5. We were there last week when we talked about how David took the throne and, and, and gathered all the people together and they became one of the great things they accomplished because they were one. But in that, that opening section of chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, the, the Bible's going to say in verse 13, among all the things that David did, sort of as this side note, David also took more wives and concubines with him from Jerusalem. Almost as a passing reference. This great man of God, listen, he was dealing with this problem all the way back in chapter 5. So it's no surprise when we get to chapter 11 that David, having not dealt with his sin, having not dealt with his lust, having not dealt with his power and his privacy, falls again. He willingly did this. 
fact, did you notice how quickly he sprang into action to cover it up? Calling Uriah home, sending him into his wife, then getting him drunk, sending him back, then sending him to his death. Every act was a deliberate choice, a willful sin that David committed. Now, I do believe there are those of us who sin and we don't want to. It wasn't our intention when we got up that morning. It wasn't our, our, our intention when we, we made the first choice that led down that road. But eventually, eventually, there's only one person to blame for the choices that we make that are sinful. And we look at that person in the mirror every day. When we sin, it's willfully. But then also, and I think important for us to consider, is we need Nathans in our life because when we sin, normally as God's people, we do so regrettably. Listen to what David said about his own sin in Psalm 32, beginning of verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin. Question, when was that? When did David keep silent about his sin? Well, it was in that time that passed between the episode with Bathsheba and then Uriah. And, then, and, and, and as things went on, David said, when I kept quiet about my sin, my body wasted away. Though my groaning, or through my groaning all day long, for night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was drained away as with the fervor, or the, 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 as with fever, heat of summer. David said, When I sat and did nothing, my heart stirred within me, and I knew that I was wrong. You notice in the context, David's response to Nathan, that David doesn't argue. David doesn't call for Nathan's head. He, do, he doesn't bring in and, and throw Nathan in jail. He falls on his face in repentance. I believe because of Psalm 32, David had lived for probably at least a year with the guilt of sin so heavy in his heart, he just needed somebody brave enough, friendly enough to say, hey, David, let's get this right. Let's fix this. Now I'd ask you, if you've ever thought about being someone's Nathan, what's held you back? What stopped you? You know, the likelihood is what stopped us is this sort of idea that, well, they're not going to listen anyway. I mean, if they did this and this and this, they're, they're not coming back. They don't want to hear from me. They know better. You know what they might be waiting for? They might be waiting for just one person, just one person to say to them, you need to fix this. I remember just a few months before we moved to Texas, there was the, the father and uncle of several church members where I was preaching who had, as long as I had known these people, he had been away from the church. He had, been, he had left his family. He had abandoned his children. He had, he had mistreated his wife severely. And he was dying of cancer. And his wife and his, and his daughter, they said, will you just go talk to him I'd never been. I didn't know the man. I knew of him because of them. I went one time. 
sat on his bedside and I asked him, do you want to be right with the Lord before you meet him? And this man in his, in his 80s cried like a baby and said, yes, I do. We prayed together. He was restored with his family. And it wasn't but a few days before he went on to meet the Lord. I don't know how many times someone else had been to him, but that was my only time. I had anticipated in my mind how I was going to exit the room, how I was going to turn the conversation back and leave without looking rude. Once this man said to me, I don't know why you're here. I'm happy with the life I have. Leave me alone. But he didn't say that at all. I'm convinced he was waiting in that moment for somebody to say, you've done wrong, and let's make it right. And by the way, the caliber of the person, the history of the person had nothing to do with somebody that walked in the room and said, this isn't right. Every one of us needs a Nathan because we sin, we do so secretly, willingly, but most of the time regrettably, and we just want someone to help us. Okay, so... What if then I want to be someone's Nathan? If these are friends we all need, I need to be them to somebody else. What do we need to be able to accomplish that? Number one, we need absolute truth on our side. We need absolute truth on our side. Now, now Nathan's situation is a little different than ours, right? Because God called him. He had all the backstory. He had all the secret information because God gave it to him. But I think there's a principle in that that we need to understand. Listen, there's a difference between someone needing a rebuke because they've sinned and someone disappointing us, right? You see, there are people who enjoy confrontation. They don't need facts at all. They just want to fight. Those people are not Nathans. We're talking about individuals who want to know, who genuinely want to understand. Now, how am I going to do that? You ever been in that situation? You've suspected something. You've wondered something. What's kept you from asking someone else about brother so-and-so? Probably the danger of gossiping, right? Planting thoughts in people's minds. I don't want to be running anyone down, but this just seems strange to me. I don't know who to ask. You know who the best person to ask is? Brother so-and-so. It's the best person to ask. Listen, if I'm going to act as a Nathan and confront someone, I need to have my facts right. And so going and sitting with someone, knocking on their door, meeting them for coffee, saying, listen, I have seen this, I have heard this, I have watched this, I don't know what to make of it, can you explain to me? You know, sometimes, sometimes we will go away from those situations without any confrontation necessary because the information supplied will fix the issue. But if I care enough to ask why, and how and when, it's going to make that next conversation a whole lot easier. Well, if that's what you've done, if that's what you said, this needs to be fixed. It needs to change. We need to confront with absolute truth. Number two, we need, we need timing to be right, don't we? Now, I mentioned it's believed just because of, of all the circumstances involved that from the events of 11 to the events of 12, almost a year has passed, if not more than a year passed. And yet we feel like sometimes if, if things aren't done now, there's no point in doing them. Or if they're not done now, we've somehow violated some, some scripture. Listen, the timing is right for every individual situation. 
Now, maybe there are some things that have to do with timing that have to do with fact-finding and gathering and praying. But the time needs to be right. Which means I need to be a person who is discreet and patient and understanding and kind. Think about when God dealt with the problem of sin for humanity. When was it? Was it when they fell in the garden? No. When it it became so bad that he had to destroy every living creature save those who found Noah and his family because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord? Did God offer a a solution to sin when, when Israel was enslaved in Egypt? No, he waited thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Do we believe God to be wishy-washy? Do we believe him to be unconcerned about the plight of humanity? Do we believe him to, 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 have, to have drug his feet out of fear? No, he was a man who, or he was a being who planned purposely for the time to be right. And we should fall in line with that. Maybe time for our own emotions to settle. Time for, for our own, uh, for the truth to be, to be uh, revealed and, and understood. Time for that individual to see the depths of their sin. And then when the timing is right, we should be a Nathan. There also needs to be a a wise set of words that are used. If If you come into a confrontation with accusations on the tip of your tongue, it's not going to go very far. You ever been there on the other end of that? Someone convinced of what you've done, convinced of what you said, convinced of how you acted, of what it looked like in the public arena, and they were ready to condemn immediately. You notice how Nathan did it. Nathan is the greatest example in all of Scripture outside of Jesus of a man who was able to confront sin and, 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 and caution the sinner along the way without any repercussions. He told the tremendous story that put David right in the heart of the problem. Now, I don't know if we have the imagination or the thought process or, or the vision to do what Nathan did. But I tell you, if we pray to God about it, he'll help us. If, if we let our emotions settle, then we can think clearly about it. If we'll follow the examples of, of men like Nathan and Jesus in Scripture, it will become clearer for us. We need wise words. Now, I believe wise, word, wise words come from the right intentions. If all we are about in confrontation is getting someone told, convincing them they're wrong, showing them that we've seen what they didn't think anyone saw, the words we choose really don't matter. But if our intention is to have that person do what David did, to come back and make full restitution before God, then our words are going to matter. And maybe most notably of all, If we're going to be a Nathan for someone, we need some fearless courage. We do. Why don't we? Why don't we confront? You see, if the idea is this, listen, here's a friend everybody needs. Nathan is needed in everybody's lives. I need to be a Nathan for people. I need to be someone who is friendly. What's the reason I generally don't do that? Isn't it because I don't want to lose that friendship? Isn't that the primary reason? Listen, I'm close to them. And we've got a good relationship, and, and I just don't want to make things awkward. Here's just my honest perspective, just one man's perspective, my honest perspective. If things aren't already awkward 
between me and someone who's living openly in sin, something needs to change about how I am and who I am. It shouldn't be the confrontation that's awkward. It should be the continual association and lifestyle of being with someone who openly, blatantly disrespects God, who is my father and creator and the one I'm committed to. What could be more awkward and strange than that? And certainly standing up for God and standing up for the, the lost uh, situation of that individual so they can come back to God should be a, a, a thing that, that, that I want to be, that I, that I want to have, that I want to show. And so I will exhibit courage in confronting that person. I don't know what the outcome will be if you try to take the role of Nathan in someone's life. But what is our chief objective? Is it to live on this earth and make friends? Is it so that all men will speak well of us? Is it so that we can surround ourselves with people that we can trust and lean on when times get difficult and we'll do anything we can to keep those relationships intact for our personal gain and benefit? If that's it, and as Jesus said, we have our reward. But if our goal is heaven, righteousness, forgiveness, if it's Christ and his church, then our approach will be drastically different. Do you have in your life right now, seriously question, do you have a Nathan? Someone that you know will come to you when things don't look right, don't sound right, you don't act right, and will say to you, this needs to be fixed. If not, find that person. Make it clear that that's what you're looking for. Are you a person accepting of a Nathan? If not, humble your heart. Maybe you're here this morning and all of this is, is mute because you stand before God lost. And you don't need to go wait and find someone and develop a friendship with someone. You need someone now to say, listen, you're not right. And so scripture would say that if you are apart from Jesus Christ, if you have not been baptized in his blood, if you're not faithfully his disciple, you stand in need of salvation. You are the man worthy, according to Romans 6, 23, of death. But also, you're one of the ones that Jesus died for, that he might save you. That's what Nathan would tell us. And so this morning, if you're apart from Christ, come to him. If you know someone who is far from us, normally I would say, look around and see who's not here. There may be a whole lot of reasons why they're not here this morning. Don't assume because they're not here this morning that they need a Nathan. Maybe they need some of the other friends we're going to talk about along the way. But maybe you do know that person who before last March, they weren't here. That since last March, their, their love for Christ has grown cold and their faith in him has diminished and their service to him has all but come to a stop you know that person you've got work to do maybe even this afternoon with a phone call or text message or personal visit or handwritten letter to say let's make this right and I'll help you every step of the way whatever your need is we invite you to come to Jesus this morning while we stand and sing